come to you praying for understanding, for the wisdom that is in your word. Help us to see Christ clearly now in your word. We pray in his name. Amen. Hold on one second. Sorry. How about now? There we go. Where do you go for comfort? When trouble comes, where do you turn? When you worry, of what do you remind yourself? Do you run to your husband or wife? Do you distract yourself with entertainment? Do you rest on your accomplishments or maybe defend your actions over and over in your head? Ultimately, what's your only comfort in life and in death? The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that our only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and it's the beginning of comfort, too. Fear isn't optional. We all fear. Terror comes upon us all. We're all driven by our fears. Fear of failure, fear of man, fear of losing loved ones. Ultimately, we're all driven by a fear of God. As Nathan said last week, we can either have an ungodly fear that drives us away from God or a godly fear that drives us to Him. And it's that godly fear that Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. And its end The end of godly fear, as we just heard Marilyn read in verse 33, is comfort. Those who fear the Lord will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Do you have this godly fear? Have you found this godly comfort? All those who have looked honestly at themselves and seen the depths of our sin and rebellion have experienced a fear, a terror, that one day they'll have to answer for those sins. And it's those fearful sinners who have then looked to Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, who have experienced a true fear of the Lord. God's love for us in Christ, His grace in freely forgiving sin, and His ownership and care of us is so great that it ought to make us tremble before Him. When we experience the sheer magnitude of God's goodness to us in Christ, we will fear the Lord.
God promises this kind of fear to his church in Jeremiah 32 and 33. He says, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. God's promise to give us a godly fear is fulfilled in Acts, and it's fulfilled in the church today. In Acts 9, Luke records that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What's true of the early church is just as true for us today. Those who walk in the fear of the Lord will walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise to cling to. God promises a fear of the Lord and a comfort for his people. And in Proverbs 1, we see that those who fear the Lord and experience his comfort, value godly instruction, flee from sin, and hear the cry of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord and experience his comfort, value godly instruction, we'll see that in verses 8 and 9, Flee from sin, we see that in verses 10 through 19, and hear the cry of wisdom. And we see that in verses 20 through 33 of chapter 1 of Proverbs. So first, value godly instruction. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me again. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Do you fear God? Then value godly instruction. First, let's look at the context of godly instruction. Then we'll look at the posture of those who value it. In God's providence, he's made it so that wisdom is transferred to us first in our lives in the context of a loving family. The first people we learn from are our parents. God hasn't made us computers. We don't download information. We don't have little USB ports that we can plug into something and upload a bunch of knowledge. We're flesh and blood that can be touched and held, hugged, nurtured, and taught. We learn and grow in the context of loving relationships. And that's because our family relationships reflect our relationship with God, the personal God who's not an abstract concept He's not a vague spiritual force. He's the personal God, Yahweh, who's revealed himself in Christ. Wisdom doesn't come to us through a collection of impersonal laws and facts, but through a person, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom comes through us through a person who loved us enough to die for us. 
We aren't saved by a philosophy. We aren't saved by a concept. We aren't even saved by a renewed understanding of what a righteous life is. We're saved by a person. And we're given a real righteousness, another person's righteousness. We're saved because we're given Christ's own righteousness. And we grow and mature in our faith by that same person's leading, guiding, and teaching us. Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. He teaches now through his word. He teaches by his example, his godly life of submission to the Father's will from birth to his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1 teaches us that it's there on the cross where the person of Christ becomes wisdom to us. There we see the wisdom of God in God forgiving sin and justifying sinners. There we see all worldly wisdom put to shame. Who can boast in his own wisdom and learning when the cross is before us, humbling us, showing us our need for salvation and God's grace? It's in the person of Christ where we're taught to know, love, and fear God. And parents, you are to model Christ to your children in your home. Your job is to teach your children to know, love, and fear God. And that means in part reflecting a Christ-like love to them. Is your home marked by the compassionate love of Christ? The wisdom and compassion with which God rules over our lives meets us in a person. Jesus called people to himself saying, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He looked on crowds and grieving widows and had compassion on them. Go to him today. Go to him every day and find compassion. He's sympathetic to your suffering. He's not far off. In due time, as we just sung in Whatever My God Ordains is Right, he will bring rest to your hearts and meet you with compassion. So parents, reflect that kind of love and compassion that we find in Christ in your homes. Next, look at verse 9. This proverb compares instruction from parents to a graceful garland. Just think of a flowery crown and a precious necklace. These are things not only to be valued, but to be held near and dear to our heads and our hearts. Parents, are your instructions worth treasuring in this way? Well, you can ensure that they are first by teaching your children the word. Read the Bible with them daily. Whether they're one or 17, read the Bible with your children and explain it to them. If you're not sure where to start, I would suggest that the Psalms are a great place to start. They're the most often book from the Old Testament that's quoted in the New. So that means that the apostles thought they were pretty important. They're a treasure trove of both doctrinal knowledge about God and heart-level application. The Bible's sufficient for a life in godliness. But teach your children to apply biblical truths to the world around them by teaching them all sorts of other wisdom. Teach them what you've learned over your life. Teach them what it looks like to love your neighbor right here in Austin. Teach them what it looks like to love their math teacher. Teach them what it looks like to love God and their neighbor 
on the athletic field. So teach them to love God, model Christ to them, but know that salvation is of the Lord. God's given you the responsibility, yes, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but know that it's God alone who saves. Trust your children's souls to Him. He's faithful and true. Pray for your children's souls daily. If you're less than five years old, can you raise your hand for me? If you're less than five years old, can you raise your hand? I know there are one or two of you. How about if you're less than 10 years old? If you are 10 years old or younger, raise your hand. There we go. Now, a lot of this group just left, but keep your hands up. If you're 20 years old or younger, raise your hand. Okay. If your hand is up right now, then this text this morning is talking especially to you. It's telling you to receive instruction. You can put your hands down now. The text is telling you to receive instruction from your parents with teachable hearts. Kids have teachable hearts. When I was a wrestler in college, I did not have a teachable heart. I was proud, and the Bible would describe me as a fool. Uh, I would look for any excuse to not listen to someone who was teaching me wrestling. If I thought someone said a word funny, if I thought he had a different style than I did, if I thought he was from a state where wrestling was no good, a national champ could walk in the room and I would ignore him. I didn't have a teachable heart. I can't imagine how much good wrestling knowledge I left on the table because of my proud heart that didn't listen to instruction. Kids, when your parents try to teach you something, do you take what they say to heart or do you tend to ignore what they tell you? How about when you're around your friends? When you're around your friends and your parents remind you of a rule they have or some instruction, do you roll your eyes? It might not be cool to be obedient to your parents, but it is wise. And ultimately, it, it, it reflects your attitude towards God. If you won't listen to your parents, it's probably showing that you aren't willing to listen to the godly authority. If you're not willing to listen to the earthly authority God's put over you, it probably shows you're not willing to listen to the heavenly authority we all have over us. Christian, do you have a teachable heart? If you fear the Lord, if you know Him, you'll love learning His will and conforming yourself to it. Treasure God's instruction by reading the Word daily. Whether it's one chapter or five, find a pace that's good for you. You could even start in Proverbs. As we go through Proverbs this summer, you could read one chapter of Proverbs a day. But whatever you do, make it a daily habit. Treasure God's instruction by meditating on God's Word and praying it into your heart. Treasure God's instruction by coming in here on Sunday mornings with a soft and teachable heart. Be ready to take instruction from the pulpit. Be willing to be encouraged and edified by hearing a member sitting next to you sing wonderful and beautiful truths to you. Be ready to shed a tear over your sin when someone stands up and leads you in a prayer of confession. Treasure godly instruction. If you're a single or 
empty nester or in some other family relationship, don't think that these verses aren't for you. This goes for any discipling relationship in the church. We should all be following someone's lead and ideally leading someone else. So these instructions go just as much for you as any child sitting here this morning. I also don't think that Proverbs here is telling us not to be discerning or discriminating. The verse seems rather straightforward. It says, hear instruction from your parents. But I don't think that we're to take this without any qualifications. I don't think we're to heed ungodly instruction from our parents. So that means if your parent is teaching you or telling you it's good to sin, you shouldn't take that to heart. The book of Proverbs as a whole is framed as the instruction from a godly father, Solomon, to his son. So what kind of instruction should we heed? Instruction that's consistent with the wisdom in Proverbs. Instruction that's consistent with the wisdom in the Bible as a whole. Throughout the book of Proverbs, moderation is praised, and I don't think it's any different here. We aren't to be proud and reject all things we hear on one hand, uh, and we're not to be um, gullible and just accept everything we hear blindly on the other. We are to value godly wisdom and have humble, teachable hearts that receive it. So what's the first bit of godly wisdom that this godly father in Proverbs offers his son? Flee from sin. Those who fear God flee from sin. Look down at verses 10 through 19 again with me. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down into the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will, have, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. The fact that the first instruction we have from this father is, that, is about resisting temptation to sin, that teaches us something. The fact that this first instruction is about sin teaches us that wisdom is inherently ethical. We can't separate wisdom from holiness, from morality, from God's law. Wisdom is inherently ethical. That means that wisdom isn't just about facts. It means that it's deeply connected with what's right and what's wrong. Wisdom and godliness, knowledge and holy living go hand in hand, and they meet perfectly in Christ. He is the wisdom of God, and He is perfectly holy. There's neither foolishness nor sin in Christ. Dutch theologian Herman Boving says that man's thinking and knowing, although bound to his brain, are nevertheless in their essence quite entirely a spiritual activity, far transcending the things he sees with his eyes and handles with his hand. Every thought we have, is either captive to Christ 
or plunges us into deeper rebellion against him. The smartest man on earth who gladly indulges in sin is, according to the Bible, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Someone who knows a lot but denies the Lord either with what they say or what they do is, according to the Bible, a fool. Neil deGrasse Tyson, a famous astrophysicist who you've probably seen on TV, denies the God of the Bible. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a fool. He hasn't even begun the journey of knowledge and wisdom. He might be able to teach you about scientific theories. He might even help us be able to view images from the universe further and further away. But if he doesn't understand that the universe he's looking at is God's universe, he isn't looking at it rightly. See, all his learning doesn't help his most fundamental problem, his rebellion against God. The most fiscally responsible and compassionate politician, if he supports policies that are clearly contrary to God's law, he is a fool. His path is not one that leads us to wisdom, but one that leads to destruction. But scientists, politicians, friends, even family members will call on you to follow them in unrighteous paths. They'll tempt you, dressing up their ideas to look like wisdom, to look pleasing, but if they aren't rooted in the fear of the Lord, we need to be aware that their paths will lead to sin and ruin. Whether you're leading or following someone else into sin, God always brings about just judgment for sin. People are ruined by their sin. A proud businessman is tormented by his greed. The sexually immoral man will ruin his marriage. The angry father will end up alone in old age. And if justice doesn't find you in this life, it certainly will in the next. It's appointed for man once to die, and after this, judgment. The Psalms often talk about the wicked who dig a pit and then fall in their very own pit. In the book of Esther, Haman seeks to hang the innocent Mordecai out of nothing but irrational rage. So he builds a gallows. When Haman's plot is found out by the king, Haman is the one who's hung himself on the very own gallows that he constructed, the tall wooden pole that he built. As Haman sought to shed innocent blood, but was put to death by his own plot, so Satan is put to death by his own wicked plan. Christ is the innocent one, ambushed without reason that we see in this text. But as Satan enters Judas to put Christ to death on the cross, he plots his own destruction. Unlike Haman, Christ does not escape the gallows. He willingly goes. But in the very act that kills the Son of God, Satan and the power of death are disarmed. And on the cross, our sinful nature too has been crucified with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 2. Our sinful nature must be crucified because we have a heart problem. Our hearts are drawn to sin because they are sinful. 
Sin isn't tempting because it's logical. We actually see how unlogical, how illogical it is in this passage. It's clearly wicked. When the tempters in this passage uh, start tempting the son, they don't start with an offer of reward or even pleasure. They say, come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Who in their right mind just goes around randomly killing people? But sin is so corrupting that it will take you out of your right mind. People need no good reason to join in. For evidence of that, just look at the response of some in our nation to the ruling from Friday from the Supreme Court. Not only the response, but look at the practice over the last 50 years we just heard about. Sin isn't tempting because it's logical. The results of wickedness are obvious. Look at verse 17. If you're trying to catch a bird, you don't put a trap right in front of it. It sees what you're doing. But every time we sin, we foolishly step into a net that we've made for ourselves and clearly see. Right? Cartoonish illustration. It's kind of like Wiley Coyote uh, snipping a string that drops an anvil. Only when we zoom out, we see that the anvil is above his own head. The reason sin is enticing isn't because it's logical. It's because that we in ourselves have a sinful nature. And in our sinful nature, we love sin. We love it so much that we'll ignore clear warnings against it. We'll ignore the obvious evil of it to participate in it. And that's because our heads aren't disconnected from our hearts. Our heads aren't disconnected from our hearts. The, the head's actually part of the heart, not anatomically, but according to the Bible, according to Scripture, our thoughts and our desires and our loves are all deeply intertwined. You can't separate them. We're easily deceived by sin because our brains are distorted by our hearts. And to make it all the more difficult, Satan's crafty. He dresses up sin to disguise it. Look at verse 13. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Sin's tempting because it promises pleasure and treasure. Isn't that what Satan does in the garden? He tempts Eve with something that's pleasing to the eye. He said, did God really say that this gorgeous fruit is so bad? Friends, believe God's word more than you believe what you see with your own eyes. Because of our sinful nature, we're easily deceived. We're willing to bite down on Satan's bait even when we know there's a hook in it. So take sin seriously. View sin rightly. See it for what God's word says it is rather than what Satan, your friends, or even your own eyes tell you it is. If you've been given a new heart in Christ, you can and you must view sin rightly. See how it leads people to hell. The end of the way of these sinners is death. It's eternal death. Sin, a rebellion against God, no matter how small or insignificant we think it is, no matter how many good deeds we think we've done to outweigh it, sin leads to hell. See how sin leads Christians to sorrow. How much sorrow did David bring into his life when he, when he sinned with Bathsheba? How many tears did Peter cry for denying Christ? How much heartache 
did the man in Corinth bring to Paul and the rest of the members of the church in Corinth because of his sin? Sin will bring sorrow to yourself and to those around you. See how sin leads you away from close fellowship with God. It's a wonderful and comforting truth that those in Christ cannot be separated from their union with him. We can't sin our way out of his love. Even great sins committed before or after our conversion can and will be forgiven in Christ. Praise God for that. While no judgment or wrath remains for those in Christ, we can do great harm to the sweet fellowship we have with him here and now. Who hasn't experienced this after indulging in the same sin you've been fighting for months and months? After lying to cover something up? Or after an outburst of anger? How hard does it seem to walk in fellowship with God? How distracted does our Bible reading become? How hard is it to go gladly to Him in prayer? How agitated are our hearts? Friends, consider the fellowship with the, we enjoy with God when you consider sin. See how sin leads to hell. See how it leads Christians to sorrow. See how it leads you away from close fellowship. And finally, see how sin led Christ to the cross. May this be your great reason for keeping from sin. See how Jesus went to the cross in order to satisfy the justice for the very sins you are tempted to indulge in. See the cross and see our record of debt nailed there. How can we gladly participate in sin when we have a clear sight of the cross in our minds? Only by the cross of Christ can our hearts be changed and our eyes be opened to the deceitfulness of sin. Christian, the blessed life is a wise life that flees from sin. Hear the striking similarity of Psalm 1 with Proverbs 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. And as those who are being conformed to the image, who have been saved by his grace, our blessedness lies in the same path as his, as one that turns from sin. And that's the call of wisdom that we see in the last part of this chapter, a call to turn from folly and sin, a call to repentance. And the one who fears the Lord will hear wisdom's call. Verse 20 to 33. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, 
I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Wisdom cries out in the streets. This is the first of many times that wisdom is personified in Proverbs. Wisdom is presented as a person. Wisdom is the word of God who is with him in the beginning, who was there at creation and who is currently seated at his right hand. Wisdom is the son of God. But notice where wisdom cries out. It cries out in the street, in the markets, at the city gates. These are public places. They're filled with competing voices. The streets are crowded, but the cry is clear. Turn to Christ. The cry of wisdom is clear. It's public. You don't have to hike up a Tibetan mountain and hear a monk whisper in your ear the secret ancient knowledge. The cry of wisdom is public. Among countless competing ideologies, among ever more clever, deceitful, and wicked worldviews, the cry of wisdom remains the same. Turn from foolishness and take refuge in Christ. The cry of wisdom is one of correction. Turn. Repent. It tells you something that none of us like to hear. You're living wrongly. The cry of wisdom tells you to stop doing what's killing you, what's leading to your destruction. Only the gospel speaks clearly and accurately to your problem and offers the right solution. Every other worldview, every other ideology will fall short. The LGBT movement will celebrate your sin. Jordan Peterson might be more honest with your sin, but he'll leave you in it. It's only wisdom, Christ crucified, that calls you to turn from your sin, turn from your folly, and turn to God, who's dealt with your sin in Christ. There he offers forgiveness, regeneration, and comfort. We can't receive God's comfort unless we first received this call of wisdom that offers correction. To comfort someone in their sin will lead them to hell. To tell someone in a burning house that everything's okay, you don't have to change, you don't have to come out, isn't loving. It's not comforting. It's wicked. That's what the wicked prophets of Israel did. They cried out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. The loving watchman calls people, calls out to them, and warns them of their sin. We all need to hear correction from outside of us. Wisdom 
the gospel, comfort, and change, they don't come from inside of us. They come from outside of us. They're not something we muster up from within. They're not something that if we just get in touch with our inner selves, our hearts, we'll then find the answer. They come from God's Word, faithfully proclaimed and applied. From the pulpit, over coffee, or at your child's bedside. We need loving brothers and sisters to tell us biblical truth. We all have skewed views of ourselves. We all need to be corrected in one way or the other. And God's given us two loving contexts in which to hear that loving correction, the family and the church. We've already talked about the blessing of godly parental wisdom, but that we know that that applies to any discipling relationship. But here are three more ways that we can foster a culture of giving and receiving godly encouragement and correction in our families and here at Millwood in the church. Three ways we can foster a culture of giving and receiving godly encouragement and godly correction here at Millwood and in our own families. First, seek opportunities to be corrected. Seek opportunities to be corrected. In our families and in our church, we should ask people for correction. When was the last time you sat down with a spouse or a trusted friend and asked for correction? Foster relationships in this church where people feel free to correct you. If no one knows you, no one can correct you. So read books together. Read books of the Bible. Read Puritan paperbacks. Anything that's going to bring up sin and give you the opportunity to ask, do you see me doing that? So one, seek opportunities to be corrected. Two, receive correction well. Receive correction well. If we seek opportunities to be corrected, scoff at the corrector's suggestion or bristle when we hear it, there probably won't be a next time. We'll miss out on opportunities for growth. When someone offers you correction, receive it humbly and carefully consider it. Doesn't mean they're always right, but even if what they say is hard to hear, be grateful that they had the courage to stand up and say something to you, to love you enough to offer correction. Is someone trying to help you see your sin more clearly right now? How are you responding to that? Three, model giving correction well. Model giving correction well. When you have the opportunity to correct someone, do so in a godly way. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. As the non-biblical proverb goes, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Our corrections must be gentle. So make sure the correcting is done in a context of love. To make sure of that, do it in the context of the church. As one member covenanted to another to look out for your good. And always root your correction in the gospel of grace. Brother, I see you sinning in this way. Christ died for that sin. Let's go to him in prayer 
and pray that we would turn from this together. Loving admonishment in the church is a blessing. We aren't alone. We aren't left to live this Christian life on our own. We're surrounded by brothers and sisters who have affirmed our faith and promised to help us grow, to weep and rejoice with us, and to love us. In this world, we will have tribulation. Jesus promises that. No person walks through this life free of trouble. We live in a fallen world full of calamity, sickness, sorrow, and death. Our loves, our pleasures, our comforts in this world are all temporary and fleeting. Too often they come and go. Our happy mornings can turn to dark, tearful evenings. But as we see in this passage, there's two ways that God can meet us in those trials. Two ways God can meet us in those trials. God will meet the hard-hearted with mocking laughter. But to the humble, repentant Christian who fears the Lord, he will meet you with comfort. Wisdom cries out. It confronts us, sometimes painfully, usually painfully. Whether it's a friend exposing a sinful pattern or an awful trial that exposes a deep-rooted idol, the confrontation of wisdom hurts. But if we respond to that pain by plugging our ears, plodding along the same course, and hating the one who offers correction, we'll march forward to our own more painful end. The fool stops the dentist halfway through filling a cavity because it's painful. The painful drilling will prevent more painful rot. It's terrifying to think that at the end of our journey, when we're face to face with wisdom himself, those who scoffed at his call will be met with laughter and mocking. The one who rejects compassionate correction today will find no compassion in the end. Today's the day to soften your heart and repent. Turn from your self-righteousness. Receive the wisdom from above that brings us low for a time, but in the end exalts us. Turn from your scoffing and trust in Christ. Those who do are met with the sweet comfort of God's presence. If you turn at my reproof, wisdom says, I will pour out my spirit to you. What does it mean that, the, that wisdom will pour out his spirit, her spirit? The next line tells us, I will make my words known to you. Do you fear God? Have you softened your heart and humbled yourself before him? If you do, you won't be met with laughter or wrath, but with illumination. God will make his word known to you. The promises of scriptural will come to you an anchor for your wind-tossed soul. The Bible will be a light to your feet and a lamp to your path, especially in the darkest, most dreadful storms. The turning from folly to wisdom described here is also not a one-time event. The Christian life is not a one-time decision. It's a life of continual repentance. It's a life that's constantly seeing 
hating, and turning from the sin in your own heart. It's a life that values godly instruction. It's a life that flees from sin. It's a life that's characterized by the fear of the Lord. Those who fear God turn to God, and there you will find peace. Jesus says that in me you may have peace. In the world you, have, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There we will find comfort. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There we will find blessed fellowship with God, eternal life, and rest forever from all our worries. Although God's children are often under the clouds of affliction, yet they are never beyond the sunshine of mercy, says Thomas Watson. For whoever listens to wisdom will dwell securely and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your comfort that you offer to us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the eternal, unchanging comfort we have through our changing, turbulent lives. Lord, we pray for wisdom to apply what we've heard from your word to our lives this morning, to your glory in Christ. Amen.